Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White, joined today by Dr. Dustin Pendle, Dr. Brian Lubers, and Dr. Philip Lancaster. Good morning, guys. Morning, Hello, Brad. Morning. Happy to have you guys with us today, and happy to have you with us as well. And you can always shoot us an email at bci at ksu.edu if you've got a topic or a question that you'd like us to address. And on today's podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about stocking rates. And I know at this time of year, we, we have lots of variation across the country, but we're going to talk about how you manage that and maybe how we deal with some of those grasses to get the most out of our forage, as well as Dustin's going to give us an update on the cattle cycle, where our, where our current inventory numbers may be going and how that's going to be important to your operation. We also were able to catch up with Dr. Borman again, and she, this is a great conversation because we talked about what's the value of some of the genetic tests that are out there. And that could be relevant to you. Finally, we'll wrap up by talking about the route of administration or how we give the products and how that may impact their overall efficacy or how well they work with the cattle in your herd. Before we jump into that, guys, the weather is warming up. It's getting into kind of the heat of summer here. What's your favorite summertime snack? Oh, it's got to be ice cream. I mean, but we don't just save it just for summer. It's it's a year-round snack. Yeah. It's the ice cream. So, like, a, like just regular ice cream. Do you like, like, the hard scoop ice cream or, like, the soft serve with lots of? We'll, we'll do the frozen custard stuff from, you know, from time to time. But, or, well, on, on a regular basis. But I, I like, I, so I tell my wife, we got to go get real ice cream. You know, every once in a while, you get it. You know, you got to have the real stuff. Yeah, absolutely, Dustin. Well, I like to eat about anything, so I guess uh, I, I don't know if I have a favorite snack. It probably depends on the time of day. You know, eight a.m. versus eight p.m. My snacks are going to be a little different. Uh, but ice cream, yeah, you can't go wrong with ice cream. Or I also like just candy, chocolate, other various. Sounds like you two would be easy to lure into an area with set, set out some candy and some ice cream. <laughs> Cut them trash. Brian? Yeah, I'm with I'm with the group. I and I'm like with Philip. ice cream's not a summer snack exclusively at our house, but um it doesn't last long whenever whatever time of year it is, but especially in summertime. We've we we do the homemade ice cream about twice a year, you know, usually a couple times in the summer and um call it good for that it's not real fun making that out when it's cold out but yep i'm with the group yeah i think it's that time of year that there's lots of those snacks and you find as the sun stays out later you can eat a little bit later and then you snack in between and makes it a fun time of year so hopefully you're having a good summer so far and i know the the rainfall this year in the country we have some parts of the country that are that are talking about uh, receiving adequate rain and other parts that are talking about being really dry. And it brings into play as we think over the long term, what is the appropriate stocking rate? And this varies greatly with annual ra- rainfall, but also with what what is it doing this year? So Philip, what how do how do I make some of those decisions relative to stocking rate on my operation? Well, like you said, Brad, it it varies a lot and and you know, there's some different strategies that we can try to do, but generally we try to hit, we get, you get a couple of philosophies. You can try to hit the, the average, you know, and set your number of cows so that you're, you're using that, that grass appropriately for an average year. Um, but then, 
you know, when if you have a dry year, then you've got more cows than you've got grass. And so then you're you've got issues with um, overstocking and, and overgrazing and and that can lead to some long term um, forage production problems. Or we have, you know, we have the philosophy that I'm going to stock kind of for the the minim, minimum, not maybe not the absolute minimum, but a lower than average. And I'm going to use some other types of animals to harvest that excess forage in in good years or or average years, um, where that I can take some of those animals on and off. So you know, especially if we think about how forage grows throughout the summer, whether it's a cool season forage or a warm season forage, there's always times of the year that we're producing more forage than we can actually graze, and so there are times of the year where I could put some extra animals on there, like some stalker calves or something to get value out of that extra forage. Um, and, and the same thing, if I'm, if I'm stocking my cows at a kind of a lower than average stocking rate, then I can put those stalker cattle on there um, in the good years. And I don't have to have them in the, in the lean years. So I think, I think that's a nice idea for managing excess forage and especially at times a year but as we think about say i've got a spring cabin herd i've got cool season grass i've got a lot of grass growing right now and i go man i'm going to get some stalkers and and put them out there with the herd brian any any implications there from a biosecurity perspective sure i any any time you're introducing an unknown animal to the herd there's always biosecurity implications right so um i i think just in as a general recommendation, especially, especially with stalker calves where, you know, they're probably multi-source, um, little history known as far as health history, uh, you're, you're kind of taking a risk and it ranges, you know, we talk about the big ones like BVD where it has some, could have some pretty serious um, reproductive implications for the, the cow herd or the heifers or whatever else is sharing that that space with those stalkers, uh, other things, you know, yoni, salmonella, I, we can go on and on with a pretty long list. So I think my general recommendation is if you're going to, if you're going to have those stalkers in, you, you really shouldn't be mixing them with your, with your permanent cow herd. Yeah. And maybe Philip, you were saying, keep them, keep them separate, right? Keep yeah. Them in, in a physical separate location. But I, I'd argue in many cases, you're going to want to have them close to each other because you're managing that grass that's right there together and you want to manage them. And Brian's point's a good one. So you've got a trade-off there between what's my optimum for the grass management versus what are the long-term implications. And Dustin, you've talked a lot about risk and basically Brian's saying, hey, there's a risk here. We don't know how big it is. And one way to mitigate it is by not having stalker calves and Phillips saying, hey, but we're giving up something. What do, you, what do you think, Dustin? Well, I like their responses, right? As an economist, it depends. Uh, <laughs> you talk to two different, uh, two different folks and get two different answers. It's, you're going to have to, I mean, there's going to be a little, little bit of rolling the dice, but uh, I mean, there's a lot of things that I think you got to pencil out or, or take into consideration, right? Uh, take a look at the, uh, What's the, even the weather forecast over the next, who knows how long, because that could have an impact on uh, how much, how much uh, grazing can be done. Yeah. So I, 
I don't know that I have a great answer, I guess, to answer your question. But, but I, think, I think what we're saying is your stocking rate is your stocking rate. This is not something we can look up. And you will, in almost all scenarios I can think of, there are times of year that you have excess forage and you can decide whether you want to try to store that forage or if you want to try to harvest it with animals. And if so, really explore those implications for your herd of, of bringing in bringing in stalkers or bringing in feeder calves or something else. Uh, because I don't necessarily want to stock it with cows because, Philip, one of the points you made is I can't just easily take them off and, and go back and forth with that. So watch your stocking rate this year. The other thing I would say Record it as you go through. What works on your operation and what's what's some of the year-to-year -year variability? And as we think about year-to-year -year variability, Dustin, I, we were talking just a little bit earlier about the cattle cycle. And it's not always a – and the cattle cycle is really measured when we go from inventory low to inventory low or vice versa with the highs uh, – it's a change over time, but it's not always consistently spaced between those highs and lows. So maybe give us some info on where are we now? Where do you, where do we think we're going? So that's uh, a good, great comment, great point. Uh, so USDA, NASA released cattle inventory numbers, uh, you know, back in January 1, they released the inventory report and that confirmed that we were continue, continuing to contract. Uh, so the, the, the cow herd was shrinking. Uh, if you take a look at the cow slaughter numbers, beef cow slaughter numbers, the first quarter 21, uh, they were the largest since, I what, say 2010. Uh, also notes that the heifer slaughter has been trending higher in the first quarter as well. And so if you're getting rid of beef cows and heifer slaughter, that doesn't point to a, a, a growing inventory number. Uh, maybe continue contraction. The, the Livestock Marketing Information Center uh, out of Denver notes that, you know, they, they try to forecast kind of what cow-calf returns are going to be. And so in 21 and 22, they forecasted they, they, the returns to the cow-calf might be a little higher, but they also note that might not be high enough to actually retain heifers or to, to, to grow that inventory numbers. But there's also a lot of other things that have an impact on on this cattle uh, cycle, right? You've got consumer demand, uh, exports, impacts, and you know, we just saw in the news, what, a week or two ago, that Argentina is suspending exports for 30 days to try to, to uh, deal with prices there. Inflation, uh, we've got labor issues, you know, and packing plants related to COVID. I mean, so there's a whole host of things uh, going on globally, uh, not just here in the U.S., uh, including, you know, high feed prices that we've talked about in recent podcasts as well. So there's a lot of things, I think, that factor into this, uh, into the, into this cattle numbers, inventory numbers. So it's not easy to pick out when it's going to go up or down. And as we think about walking through some of the cattle inventory changes, how should I manage that on my operation? And Philip, you just, you just talked about well, maybe I bring in some things or have some animals leave because of grass quantity. How do you take this information as a producer and, and really put it into practice? Well, that, so trying to manage through that, that cattle cycle and, and things like that is, is, you know, trying to get more growing animals 
on your operation is is one way to to help out in that um you know we've we talked we talked about it before on the podcast that that maintenance requirement is is a big component and so when we're adding growing cattle to our our operation um when when cow herd numbers we're putting more pounds of weight uh, or we're getting more pounds of weight off of our our operation in that regard rather than um we're not growing the the cow herd itself yeah and i think one of the things i think about on the so on the cow calf side and i'll throw this idea out you guys can say if it makes sense or not but on the cow calf side it's a long-term investment right and this this is not a speculation where I'm going to get in and out of the market. So similar to when you're making an investment in stocks, you may decide, hey, I'm going to get in. And then when it goes up 5%, I'm going to be out. I'm going to try to do market timing. That's not really what we do on the cow-calf side. On the cow-calf side, you have cows and you try to match them best to the environment based on the grass. And some years, the prices are better than others. And my herd inventory may fluctuate a little but I'm not really jumping in and out of the market. So from a, I can see how this greatly impacts on the feeder side, greatly impacts on the stalker side, but on the cow calf side, I, I'd say my inventory is what it is and I'm hoping prices are good, but I may not modify my inventory much to affect it. What do you guys think? No, it's, it's a long-term, that's a long-term investment on the cow calf side. You we're not making short-term decisions there. And so, yeah, I, I agree. But the cattle cycle is also not something that's year in, year out different, right? I mean, it's a eight to 12 year, so it's a long run as well. And so you could have your strategy that I want to, you know, maybe your strategy is opposite of the cattle cycle. I'm going to grow my herd when it's in the lows, when everybody else is getting rid of the, and then when we start to peak, which it could be eight, 10, 12 years later, maybe I start to, to maybe get rid of some of my heifers, not retain some start to shrink it a little bit before it starts to fall back down. And so I agree it's a, it's, it's a, it's a long run thing, but cattle cycle is also a long run. So there are plans that, you know, producers can plan for that 10 to 12 year cattle cycle as well. Brian, did you have a thought? Yeah, it just, um, that's actually more of a question. And it just, it just kind of came to me is, you know, how much, um, how much do we think that, that COVID is going to impact cow-calf because I agree that it is a long-term investment, but a lot of cow-calf producers, um, that, that is only a partial part of that household income. And so, you know, if that household income fluctuates in other ways for external factors and a lot of them that, that Dustin mentioned that are extrinsic to the, the operation itself, but there may be, factors that are intrinsic to or extrinsic to the the household income how what kind of impact would we expect that to have that's a great question i don't know that anybody has uh, a crystal ball or an answer to that as because there's so many things that could have an impact right I and mean, we're talking about inflation labor shortages and maybe in the packing plants uh you know brad mentioned earlier our consumer is going to come back i mean come back in terms of Back, go back out to eat, or are they still going to continue eating at home? Uh, and it, there's just so many things I think happen globally that I don't know that I have a good answer answer to Brian's question. 
Yeah, no, I think you're, I think you're right. There's, it's certainly something to keep an eye on as we move forward because we know it does impact us. But as a long-term investor or a cow-calf owner, you're going to be in it, although you may modify and tweak. And Dustin's point is good. You've got time to plan if you know when it's occurring, but there's so many external factors, it's hard to project. Here's the year it's going to be the peak or the or the valley. So, And it was good. I mentioned at the top, we've got a, we had a chance to catch up. And I, and I wanted to want to get to that conversation because we had a great conversation with with dr borman from kansas state uh she's in the animal science department and does genetics and genetic research and a lot of teaching and we had some questions that we we still wanted to ask so we appreciate you joining us again dr borman because the one big question that keeps coming up and and i may start out by uh asking you a question dustin is when we think about all the genetic tests that are out there, and I'm going to lump together that there may be a test that looks for, uh, are these the right heifers I should save? Is this the right bull I should pick? Is this the right carcass quality? How do I decide in broad terms, is applying a genetic test to my herd of economic value? Dustin, how would you go through that process? Well, uh, it's a great question, and and there are different types of genetic tests, as you pointed out, and I don't know that I understand all of them. So I'm going to actually pose some questions to our uh, to the the rest of the crew on here to help me better frame or think about this. But you know, I think about okay, what are the costs costs of a test? Um, and again, there's different kinds of tests, can be different kinds of costs. That's only part of the equation. The other part of that equation is the value. You know, what are the benefits of a genetic test? And so I think of things like, you know, kind of the 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 who, the who what, when, why, where, uh, who you know, who benefits from this, uh, or where along the supply chain are we talking about? Uh, you know, when do these benefits occur? Which maybe that's related to where at in the supply chain. Uh, why do the benefits occur? Uh, and, and probably most important, what are these benefits? And so I'm going to pose that some of those questions to the rest of the folks on the, the podcast. That way we can try to help find the other half of that equation, the kind of the, the value or the benefits, and you can compare that to the cost. Well, those are great questions and, and ones that we hear all the time as well um, from our side of the road. And, you know, I think I always circle back to the basics and I say that genetic testing is not a substitute for good record keeping. And, you know, the, the best way to start making progress in your herd is to start recording data in your herd performance. Once you've recorded the phenotypes, there's a good place to start. And by phenotypes, I mean things like weaning weight, birth weights, cow, especially cow fertility records, um, things like that. And then the best way to use genomics is to work with, um, we call them genetic evaluation service providers, so traditionally breed associations. And there are different ones now that work with commercial cattle. But if you can get your data into a system that will do genetic predictions, produce EPDs, the genomics can dovetail into that and give you better information to make selection. A genomic test on its own in my opinion, has fairly limited value. But when it's combined with good record keeping and put into a system that allows you to make genetic predictions, then it can be very valuable. I think, Dustin, to your point or your question about when in the supply chain, I think it depends on what traits the genetic test is, is testing for. 
And, you know, for example, if you're looking at a genetic test for carcass traits and you're selling your calves at weaning, your value of using that test is not going to be very high. I think it's the, the first comment, I, and I think it's, I'm going to quote her, uh, not a substitute for record keeping. We've said that numerous times on various podcasts, uh, not necessarily related to genetic testing, but for other record-keeping purposes. Uh, so I, just an interesting comment. But it, but it has some appeal because I could go run a genetic test today and it's not as much work as continually keeping good records year after year, month after month, right? So I've got the appeal that, and don't we all want a shortcut, right? The the Which is why <laughs> we look at things that are sold to us the shortcut to losing weight, uh, getting exercise, getting more exercise, doing any of those things. If I could do it faster and easier, I would do it. And sometimes I think that's where the, whether we're consciously or not, that's where our mind goes. And Brian, I know you were getting ready to say yeah. something as well. Uh, well, actually, you, you mentioned shortcuts in, in the examples you gave. They all have limitations, right? The, the shortcut to losing weight is, at least in my hands, it never works. So, you know, what about the, what about the limitations of the genetic test, Dr. Borman? And I'll, I'll just give you, you know, the, the example I always hear is, you know, by, by using a genetic test to select for a specific trait. So I pick, you know, performance as a general trait, right? Are we inadvertently negatively selecting for other traits that could be beneficial, like let's say health. And so, you know, by selecting and genetically selecting for an animal that grows fast or grows big or grows efficiently, are we having some adverse effects on resistance to disease or something like that within my herd? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's actually two separate questions. Um, and first is sort of the limitations of a genetic test. And that's sort of within the trade itself. If I do a genetic test for, I don't know, weaning weight, how much benefit do I get from that? Well, the genetic test does not perfectly describe 100% of the genetics for weaning weight or whatever. And so they certainly help us know something about that trait, but they don't describe all of the genetic variation. And every test is different for every trait, and, and you can find some of that documentation. Oftentimes you see something like, this test gives you the equivalent of five progeny or something like that. And so it does give you valuable information, but it doesn't give you everything. So there are limitations within a trait even to a genetic test. Now, the second point is that you, you asked about making changes, selecting for a certain trait and maybe negatively impacting something like disease resistance. And we know that absolutely can happen because of genetic, what we call genetic correlations, the fact that traits are connected at the genetic level. And if we select for one trait, we may be changing another trait in a way we may or may not intend to do. And if we're not measuring that other trait, we don't know. And so have we selected cattle to be higher performing and therefore they now maybe are not as disease resistance? Um, I don't think we know because we don't have the data. We have to collect data to be able to understand if there is a negative relationship between traits that we care about. And if we have the data and if there is a negative relationship, 
we actually have tools that we can select around that. We have ways to find cattle that can do both things well, but without the data, we can't do that. I think that's a really interesting concept because one of the things that as we think about selecting for those traits, it's often, and I like that Brian picked disease because we don't expect that there's one trait that influences disease by itself. But as you start selecting several things, it would be easy to progress down that, down that road. What have we seen in other species relative to some of these selections and the trade-offs and using these genetic tools? Well, I think over the, the decades we've seen, um, you know, a swine comes to mind as an example that, that we've seen that faster growing, leaner, more efficient types of, of pigs probably aren't as reproductively efficient um, as they might have been a few decades ago. So sort of a negative relationship between production and reproduction in that instance. No, and one of the things that, and again, as kind of the old guy on the podcast, I, I can remember when geneticists were really just coming out with kind of herd level, total performance records and those types of things. And we were looking at a pretty small number of traits, you know, birth weight, weaning weight, yearling weight, and that was about it. Um, and then over my lifetime, that, that the number of traits that we were looking at has really expanded. And I see that as a real positive, mostly. But it's also interesting in that as I try to select bulls or, or replacement females that meet my needs the best, um, more information tends to make it less clear who the best animal is. Um, because, and, I, and I love to use the track athlete because I think track as a sport has the most diverse type of athletes compared to any other sport. Uh, you've got shot putters, you've got sprinters, you've got distance runners, you've got pole vaulters. And I can guarantee you that the best shot putter is not the best sprinter. Um, and so if you kind of put a lot of traits, you end up with kind of the decathlete, the, the, the athlete that's pretty good at a lot of things, but they wouldn't be a great sprinter and they wouldn't be a great um, shot putter. So by adding more traits, are we in some ways avoiding kind of over selection on, on one trait and yet also maybe never getting that awesome, awesome shot putter. Um, so I, I don't know if I'm asking a question that you can answer, Dr. Borman, but uh, I kind of like that we're adding more traits, but is there a limit to that? And what's the benefit or how do I put that all together? Well, that's a great question. And that circles us back to a, a technology that's not new, but is relatively new to the beef industry. And that's selection index. And that's the, the technology that allows us to optimally combine a lot of traits by their economic value. So to use your track example, um, maybe shot putting is worth $100 a foot and sprinting is worth only a dollar a second or something like that. And we need to account for that when we want to select the best animal. And so what selection index does is it uses the actual economics of the traits, which sometimes is easier said than done, but getting the actual economic value and then looking at those traits across those animals and finding the animals that are best for profitability. Now, they may be profitable because they're high growth or maybe they're profitable because they're good reproduction or whatever it is. doesn't necessarily matter at the end of the game as long as they're profitable. And so index is the optimal way to do that. Now, the, the caveat there is that each producer has to be very judicious about selecting the correct in index. And this ties back to Dustin's comment early on. If you're selling your calves at weaning, 
it doesn't make a lot of sense for you to use an index that puts a lot of emphasis on carcass traits because you're not reaping the benefit of that selection. Now, you know, you could argue some value-based sort of feeder calf pricing sorts of things, perhaps, and we see some of that, but, but selecting the index that matches what your goals are is really critical to getting the, finding the best animals that work for that particular operation. Absolutely. And I think that's really good feedback as we think about applying genetic tests. I'll, I'll encapsulate some of the things that, that you guys have said, figure out whether or not it works for your herd, but keep good records, use the production records to make decisions, and they're part of this genetic process. Whether or not it's economically viable is going to depend on your marketing plan. It's going to depend on when you market. It's going to depend on the traits you market. And then kind of the last topic that you guys talked about, I'm going to steal your phrase here, that intermediate optimum is what we're looking for. And you said that on our previous podcast, and I really like that because you're not looking for, you're looking for the decathlete. You just have to decide what are the events in your decathlon right for your herd and then you put those together so we appreciate you joining us again i think this would be very informative for our listeners so thank you dr borman thank you very much last topic that i wanted to address was brian this is really kind of one for you as we think about root of administration and sometimes there are products that are labeled a certain way and i know they may work better one way than another but is it really is it a big deal if something's labeled subcutaneously and I give it intramuscularly or something's labeled IV and I give it intramuscularly? Are there, what are the implications of that? So the, the quick answer, yes, it's a big deal. So I'll start there uh, just to be very clear. Uh, and for several reasons, you know, we, we want to make sure, and I'll, maybe we should specifically talk about, we've got drugs and vaccines both ways. Um, a lot of the issues are the same. I think for drugs and vaccines, I would say uh, root of administration could definitely impact efficacy. So how those drugs or vaccines would work. Uh, the other thing on, and this is more specific on the, on the drug product side uh, for drugs, you know, we, we also worry about residues. And so um, it is possible that if you give a drug that's labeled for one route by another route, um, it won't be absorbed from that area as quickly, or it may not be metabolized or eliminated from the animal as quickly. And so you, you actually, we can end up in situations where a, an improper route of administration could lead to a violative drug residue. And, and so you're so, saying that when you're talking about drug residues, like the slaughter withdrawal time yes. would not be what they have listed on the label if you don't give it the way you're supposed to based on the label. That is correct. Yes. And, and, you know, there's a couple examples out there. And if, if you wanted more information, you know, the USDA publishes the residue violations summaries every year. And so you can go find that information. But uh, some of those drugs, if we if we give them by a different route, the, the slaughter withdrawal needs to be extended quite substantially, Brad. So if you, is it fair to say too, and I think I've seen some adverse reactions, tissue swelling, pain, heat from products that were, that were given in a route different than how they were intended. Is, does that happen sometimes as well? 
it, it can, it's, you know, from the pharmacology perspective, that's not the primary thing I generally worry about. I worry about the drug not working or the, the drug causing a human food safety issue, but um, certainly you can see reactions uh, and there are some products, um, not a lot in food animal medicine, but uh, in human medicine, companion animal medicine, where the, the drug itself is really caustic in tissue or a tissue irritant. And so a lot of those have to be given IV for that reason. We, they're, they're just, they're so irritating to the tissues that we, we do it, you know, a slow IV injection or we dilute it out IV and give it over a long period of time. But uh, that's not as common in food animals. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the big things to think about is those guidelines on the label are there and they implicate the right way to do it. And that does influence your withdrawal time. It influences how well that product's going to work. So Yeah. It, and, and one thing too, Brad, is people understand that changing the route of administration is an extra label use. And so anytime we use drugs extra labely, there are conditions by which we have to do that. And one of them, the first, very first one is that a veterinarian needs to be involved. So if there's any question about whether, you know, it needs to be given the way it is on the label, obviously talk to your veterinarian and they can walk you through why, why it has to be that route and why we shouldn't change it to a different route of administration. Excellent. Thanks, Brian. And thank you for listening and, and joining us today's episode. If you have any questions, comments, anything you'd like us to talk about on a future episode, you can always send us an email at bci at ksu.edu. 